The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for continuing to get up in the morning on this horrible Supreme Court week. I have a two-part show today. First, I talk with Politico's Nahal Tusi about all the crazy things happening in foreign policy, from Pompeo's trip to North Korea, to the NATO meetings with Trump, and then to Trump's meeting with his best buddy, Vladimir Putin. Uh, So that's part one. And then part two of today's episode is a conversation with Roger Bennett from Men Blazers, which is one of the funniest, smartest podcasts about soccer there is. Uh, We talked about the World Cup. He is an American, but he's a huge England fan. We talked about what it means for uh, England and the UK. We talked about the fact that the tournament is in Russia and how that host country's mere existence sort of lords over the entire tournament. Uh, And we talked about FIFA and the corruption and and how Americans are truly coming to love soccer. So it is one of the most fun conversations I've got to have on this show. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. And thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Nahal Tusi. She's a foreign affairs correspondent at Politico and a dear friend of the show. Thank you so much for coming back on. It's great to talk with you again. It's great to be here. Um, This has been a weird week. I mean, even with all the Supreme Court drama and focus, there's a ton going on in foreign policy. So I'm I'm really excited to talk with you. It's only Tuesday. How can you say it's been a weird week? I I literally said this in the car on the way over. And our producer's like, it's fucking Tuesday, man. Like, we're just getting started. (laughs) Um, But so I guess I'm counting Pompeo's brutal trip to North Korea. So just to to rehash, I mean, he didn't get the meeting he wanted with Kim Jong-un. There was weird tension and and back and forth in the meetings he did have. And the North Koreans slapped him around uh, in a statement after the meetings were over and he'd left the country. Curious what you're hearing out of the White House and the State Department about the prospects for actually getting something done with North Korea. I mean, my, my sense of this as an outsider is he has an almost impossible job. He has to get North Korea to agree to all the hard stuff they don't want to do while not letting the talks blow up and creating a bad news story for Trump when that's the thing he seems to care about the most. But I, I, you're, the, you're the one covering this day to day. Uh, Well, he also has to deal with another major factor, which is the president uh, and the things that the president has said and is saying, for example, saying that North Korea no longer poses a nuclear threat to the U.S. It felt premature. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, mean, you know, so Pompeo (laughs) is kind of stuck in this really uh, difficult position. Um, He has not given up by any means, though. Uh, From what I can tell, you know, there's a sense uh, within the White House and the State Department that, sure, this is an obstacle and it didn't go as well as they would like, uh, but that this is kind of standard for North Korea. You know, they do occasionally do this type of thing where they lash out or they uh, use their rhetoric as a weapon. Uh, And Pompeo, to some extent, fought back. I mean, like on the comment that the North Koreans made saying that the U.S. was acting like a gangster or whatever, uh, you know, Pompeo was like, look, then the whole world is a gangster because we're all uh, putting pressure on you. And he even returned to using the concept of maximum pressure uh, involving sanctions. So, you know, he's he's being a little more edgy with his tone, but I don't get the sense by any means that they're giving up uh, on the diplomatic route. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, this is the North Korean playbook. It's a it's a throw a monkey wrench in negotiations, drag them out, um, you know, try to extract what they want. But do you get the sense from anyone that they're concerned that by making the statements uh, that Trump has made about how there is no longer a threat and, and, in my opinion, seeming so eager for a deal that he maybe has given away some leverage because the North Koreans know that he wants this so much more than they do? Yeah, 
I mean, there's certainly a concern that, you know, that maybe Trump was perfectly fine with what he called a contract, um, <laughs> which wasn't a contract. It was just a joint statement that he and Kim Jong-un came up with that basically said, you know, we agree that there's going to be complete denuclearization without getting in, into any of the details. And so for the North Koreans, it's like, oh, well, we're going to go ahead and define denuclearization the way we want to, and they can do it the way they want to, and we'll just see how long we can drag this out. And the other part, though, is remember, one of their key points is to try to get a loosening of economic sanctions, right? The longer this drags out, the harder it's going to be for the world to keep up these sanctions, right. especially for China. And I think, you know, we've already <laughs> seen some modest loosening uh, of the sanctions from China. And in a, in a sense, like despite what Pompeo is saying about keeping up maximum pressure or whatever, the Americans do understand that, like, over time, that's going to be really, really hard to do. Yeah. And the North Koreans know that the time is on their side. And let's not forget, the North Koreans also know that, you know, Kim Jong-un is going to be their leader forever and ever, and President Trump, you know, might be gone uh, in two and a half years or six and a half years. Yeah. doesn't feel like we're in a very good position on this one, from, uh, from my point of view. But when have we ever been? You know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. The that's thing about true. North Korea is, like... I, I love it when people like criticize Trump because then I'm like, well, you know, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. No, and look, you can say that directly to me. Like, I'm, I'm glad he's making uh, a diplomatic gambit. I just do worry about them, you know, making it harder on themselves uh, and punting the difficult work and then either acquiescing to what Kim Jong-un wants uh, and we sort of back into accepting them as a as a regime capable of hitting the United States with a nuclear weapon, or we get back to the position where Trump gets his dander up and then we're, you know, at that scary friction point again. But long way I mean, to go look, there, there are countries out there with nuclear weapons that are not necessarily, you know, the ideal countries to have them. I mean, Pakistan is a good example, you know, but yet the U.S. has managed to live with that. It, I wouldn't be surprised if 20, 30, 50 years from now, the North Koreans still have nuclear weapons, yeah. and we've somehow managed to, to live with it. Yeah, I agree. The other major thing going on is, is Trump just arrived in Brussels today, I believe, uh, for the NATO summit. NATO meetings are normally about coordination among friends. Uh, this year, the meeting is likely to focus on why Trump thinks the alliance is obsolete and why he seems more eager to kick around Angela Merkel of Germany than Vladimir Putin. What issues do you expect will come up? And, and why do you think Trump is so eager to criticize countries in NATO for not spending enough on collective defense if he doesn't seem to think that the alliance is worth anything? Well, look, Trump has always had a strong suspicion of multilateral alliances, these kind of globalist types of institutions, and his base does too. So politically, like, you know, going after, like, these organizations like the U.N. or whatever, it doesn't hurt him at all. In fact, it kind of boosts him uh, politically, domestically. Uh, but there's also just the fact that he really, he really, you know, doesn't care much for anything that's multilateral. He prefers kind of the one-on-one -on -one type of approach. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the thing about Trump that's fascinating in terms of NATO is he just doesn't really seem to fully grasp the way the spending structure actually is. Right. Like, he, he acts as if countries in NATO pay dues to the United States, and that's not what it is at all. No. And he keeps, you know, saying things in tweets and others that, that just, I, I mean, part of me is wondering if he does get it, but he doesn't want to admit that he gets it, and he's trying to rile people up by saying things that are misleading. But, you know, that's just, that's just not it. But, it but, but what's happening is there's just tremendous anxiety in Europe over the way um, he has treated them. And so there's a lot of concern about what Trump is going to show up uh, this week. They're worried that uh, he's going to just trash them. Uh, and it's going to further erode trust between the U.S. and its European allies. And then, let's not forget, he's going to be going to see Vladimir Putin a few days later. And they're just really worried that he's going to cozy up to Putin and, you know, make Russia even more bold when it comes to its aggressive actions against Europe. Yeah. I, I want to get to the Putin meeting in one second, but I, I think you've done a lot of reporting on this. I mean, Trump tweeted, I think, just today that a bunch of countries in NATO are short of their current commitment of 2% uh, spending of GDP on defense. But he's even wrong about that, right? I mean, the 2% spending target is not a current commitment, but a goal set for 2024, which is six years away. No one is delinquent. No one owes us anything. I mean, again, to your point, he's either confused or just enjoys repeating something about our closest allies that's factually wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing, though, is actually, look, NATO spending, it, it's long been the goal that countries need to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Like, that that's not a new thing. No. For, like, years and years and years, presidents have complained that uh, most of the European countries just don't do it. Including uh, Obama. There were commitments. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there were commitments made in, like, 2006, I believe it was, to have everybody meet that threshold. And then back in 2014, that people renewed their pledges and they said, look, by 2024, we're going to meet this 2% threshold. And just, you know, for your uh, listeners, you know, between 2006 and 2014, there was this terrible economic crisis in Europe. So a lot of countries just really had a difficult time increasing spending, even if they if they wanted to. Um, so now what's happening, though, and and so, so in a way, like a lot of people say, look, Trump's criticism of NATO, even if he doesn't really fully understand it, it's still valid. There's mm-hmm. a disparity between how much the U.S. spends on defense and how much these other countries spend, and it's not fair. Now, that being said, there has been significant progress. Recently, um, it was announced that all NATO members have increased spending on defense in real terms, and I believe it's about half of them um, are on their way or well on uh, to meeting the 2% goal by 2024. So they're doing it. I think Trump seems to think that they can just kind of do it immediately, mm-hmm. you know, like in a day, but this isn't the type of thing that you can just do, you know, on a dime. Right. Um, so it's just going to take time. And Part of it, though, could be Trump's approach to things, which is he often likes to just push, 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 you know, and believe, and he believes that if you are harsh, that people will go further than they would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems funny. Like, at this point, he could take a victory lap instead of criticizing these countries. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think he enjoys the fight. He enjoys wringing as much as he can out of them, I guess. Yeah, and I, I do think, you know, you might see him take some credit for uh, some of the increased spending, but he's clearly not satisfied. Right. And so I, I'm pretty confident we're going to see, you know, a Trump that is pretty belligerent in a lot of ways. And, and I mean, honestly, I'd be really shocked if he was suddenly incredibly gracious um, and collegial. And that's, that's the spending is one thing. The other question is whether he's going to reiterate the U.S. commitment to Article 5, which is the collective defense principle that's really at the heart of NATO. Um, and if he doesn't do that, then, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, this, the, yeah. That rodeo again. So he'll go to Brussels. He'll scare the shit out of our allies, probably. Uh, and then he'll go see Vladimir Putin. Um, do we have a sense of what's on the agenda for that meeting? And, you know, how are we still hearing Trump aides promise that he'll get tough on Putin when Trump goes out and, and seems to do the opposite and even reportedly told Putin that some of his own aides were stupid people, quote unquote, uh, for trying to keep from Trump from calling Putin. Uh, yeah, I mean, so last I checked, and you know, these things are often changing, uh, but there's going to be at least a, a, one, a one-on-one session between Trump and Putin. And I, you know, I would watch for a number of things on that um, that could kind of signal how things are going. First of all, Trump's tweets going in. It's going to give us a sense of what's what's on his mind. The body language. Uh, you know, if he kind of is really, really palsy and like pats Putin on the back, that sort of thing, uh, it's going to annoy a lot of European allies. Uh, Putin is like a KGB guy, so he's a little tough to read, except he has a, he does seem to have a hard time masking his face when he's like amused by something. Mm-hmm. How long the meetings last, I think is going to be key. And, and that means, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they're getting along, you know, what, better or worse or anything. It just kind of could speak to the intensity. And then we're going to want to see what any kind of joint statement afterward uh, says um, and what he tweets, what Trump tweets afterward. Now, more specifically to your question about, you know, why is he taking this kind of a contradictory approach when his people say, well, we're so tough on Russia? Well, first of all, part of the reason they've been tough on Russia is because Congress has made them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so let's not let's not forget that. But secondly, you know, Trump seems to believe that he can – it's like a good cop, bad cop thing with him, you know, like – he wants to be the one to be friendly, you know, but his aides can go out and say things that he doesn't want to necessarily say to people face to face. I mean, let's not forget, I know, I know Trump, you know, is kind of famous for like telling people you're fired or whatever, but mm-hmm. the reality is he doesn't actually even like doing that. No. He doesn't necessarily like confrontation face to face. So this is one of those things where he, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Maybe he just thinks if I'm nice to the guy, 
you know, he'll be nice to me and I'll get what I want when it comes to sanctions, Ukraine, Syria and Iran, I would also add. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's exactly going to come of it. This is going to be this is going to be a challenge uh, for anyone because Putin is is really a master at this sort of thing. And he will tell Trump what Trump wants to hear. Um, but will he give him what he wants at the end of the day? And what exactly does Trump really want? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would be. Copy of the pizza. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know. I mean, Anything maybe. is possible. Maybe I mean, this is, you know, this is the DVD. problem with covering this administration is like, Everything is just like up and down and you don't really know what's real and what's not. And it's this constant state of chaos. And, you know, going back to like NATO and Europe, I mean, they are so frustrated, partly because Trump and his people, his administration are so unpredictable. Right. And so they say, look, we get it if our adversaries are unpredictable. We get it if our enemies are contradictory, but we cannot tolerate that in an ally. And and that's that's really at the heart of the frustrations with Trump. And even when it comes to his relationship with Russia, there are contradictions in it. And that alone drives people just nuts. Agreed. Uh, Nahal, thank you so much for this foreign policy issue speed dating session. Everyone should check out your work on Politico and follow you on Twitter at Nahal Tusi. Uh, you, uh, you tweet a lot of funny, thoughtful and smart stuff that has uh, made me better at doing this job. So thanks for Thank you talking so to me. much. I'm so happy to be here. When we come back, my interview with Roger Bennett from Men and Blazers. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. 
My guest today is Roger Bennett. He's the co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Men in Blazers. He's the co-author of Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, a suboptimal guide to soccer, America's sport of the future since 1972. And his new podcast, American Fiasco, chronicles the U.S. men's team's 1998 (laughs) World Cup bid and is brilliant. I am a listener. I am halfway through and loving every minute of it. He also recently returned to the U.S. from Moscow, where he covered the World Cup. Roger, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Tommy V, you are. I have a a very short list of people in my life who I haven't met, but I'm incredibly fond of. And you are you are near the top of that list. So it's a joy to be with you. Can't wait to disabuse you of that notion. Um, (laughs) I talk a lot about a lot of serious shit on this show. You know, people get tired of hearing me depress them. But today we're going to talk about something fun, the World Cup and politics and how they all overlap. Now, you are a newly minted, proud American, but you are an England fan. What has it been like for you watching your team destroy the competition in this tournament? Uh, and was uh, was your departure <laughs> the the missing piece of the puzzle uh, for the English oh, side? Like the Ewing theory, um, but for non-playing fans of a team, that the team gets better the second uh, an element, the best elements discarded from it. Listen, if it took me becoming an American for England to become quite good at football, which is where they are. They're quite good at football in this tournament. Then it's a win-win because I love America more than Kenny Powers loves America. (laughs) Um, I I moved here as a fulfillment of a life dream, uh, which I harbored deep within uh, since I was a, you know, before I was a teen watching all of the shows that you guys pumped out around the world to draw us all to your country with soft power like sirens singing to sailors on the rocks, you know, heart to heart, a love boat, <laughs> fantasy island. So is the single joy of my life to become an American, which I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I actually support the US team. I want to be clear, the men's and women's team are since n- the early 90s when I moved here to Chicago and watched the US team swagger out onto the field uh, in their denim, stonewashed denim jerseys, ginger of beard, mulleted of hair i fell in love with that team the men's and the women's and and the the podcast american fiasco tells the story of that time 94 to 98 this american team that did what american teams always do which is believed it could win but the american dream sadly doesn't uh work in world football and it became a little bit more like an apocalypse now journey Uh, but watching this england team which i do with muscle memory Tommy, I, I don't cheer for them. I am, I am as American as they come. But I, I've spent hours and hours and hours of my life watching the English national team from, from the kid age to now. And when I thought, watch them do well in this World Cup, I realised so few minutes of that time have actually been happy ones. <laughs> so few memories are happy. This is a self-sabotaging team that, like Charlie Brown, running at a football where Lucy Holding always goes off to any tournament and says, all right, we're going to win it for you, the nation of England. And they they put on Tommy hats or bowler hats or tuck bulldogs under their arms, wrap themselves up in our flag, appear on the back of the newspaper, the tabloid newspaper, and they say, this time, more than any other time, we're going to win it. And then they humiliate themselves in the most self-sabotaging, self-destructive, excruciating fashion. So to see them actually do well, more than that, to be candid, Tommy, to see them Englishmen actually enjoy being together, being in each other's company and enjoy playing football, to smile while playing football. That was enough. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens and we're on the eve of the biggest game uh, of my generation, the semi-final of the World Cup, whatever happens tomorrow, and we can talk about it, they've already won the World Cup, as far as I'm concerned, just by enjoying themselves. Yeah, well, you guys are basically a nation full of pre-2004 Red Sox fans, and it, it is a <laughs> is a joy to, to hear the enthusiasm in your voice and to root for Don't you guys. Don't take away our losing, Tommy. It's all we've got. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ruin this with some politics. Um, just Please, days... stick to politics, Tommy. Yes, stick to politics. I know, I know. Just days after the Brexit vote, uh, England was knocked out of the Euro 2016 tournament. Uh, so that was not a great week. Now you guys are in the semifinals of the World Cup, and the government is falling apart. Is is Boris Johnson trying to take his Brexit ball and go home and just ruin this tournament for everyone? <laughs> or how are people reacting in, in the UK? You were very kind because we didn't just lose in the Euros. Um, for, for your listeners who don't know who beat us... We got battered by Iceland, by tiny Iceland. It was like tiny Iceland pulled down 
the once great empire of England shorts, gave us a wedgie and then a bare bottom spanking <laughs> with the whole world watching. It was deeply humiliating. Out of humiliation, for once lessons were learned and changes were made. And yet we are living in this, in this kind of uh, bipolar reality. Um, if you're an English football fan, if you live in England, which thankfully I don't, but you've got this bipolar reality where right now on the front page of the newspaper, England is destroying itself with Theresa May, with Boris Johnson, with Brexit, with Remain. It is, it is human darkness. And then you can flick through whatever newspaper it is. It doesn't matter. You flick from that front page towards the back. And on the back, you have stories of an England that's united. And it's been united by this football team, this young football team, this optimistic team of wonder, a deeply multi-ethnic uh, football team, a, a team whose star striker, his father comes from Ireland, the, the parents who hearken from Nigeria, there's players who uh, were born in Jamaica. It's an incredible uh, kind of global uh, face of England, a, a modern England, an England that is deeply aspirational. And those two, the sports pages and the front pages, they couldn't be more different right now. One is just bifurcation and splintering uh, of the English identity, and the other is just warm, full of wonder, uh, unity and globalism. It's a very odd reality to live through. That, that's beautiful. Our front pages are Donald Trump saying something horrible, followed by Donald <laughs> Trump saying something horrible. So that sounds really nice. Yeah, and the American team sadly didn't even qualify, so you don't no. even get the, the panacea, the, the circus, the bread and circus of the football on the back pages, dark times. I, think, I wonder if there's a metaphor there. I mean, America looms large in so many international institutions, from the, the UN to the WTO to tennis to name your sport, and we are just completely absent. Is the world moving on from, from America in this tournament? Um, you know, here's how I think about it. I, I love America. Uh, and I love the sport of soccer. It's the story of my life is having watched the, the sport of soccer, which when I moved here in the early 90s, you know, it really was like like space for Captain Kirk. It was the final frontier. Americans were not just disinterested in soccer. They actively hated it when I moved here. And I almost thought, you know, they always hated it too much. I remember when the US were given the right to host the 1994 World Cup which was in the late 80s. I remember one of your great learned congressmen, Jack Kemp, once a, once a, uh, a, an esteemed quarterback in the NFL. Uh -huh. Well, probably, uh, for those of you who actually watched him play, you'll know he was quite a mediocre quarterback. But when the US were given the honour of hosting the World Cup, which is, which is one of the great honours that a, 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 a nation can be given, and thank God we've just been given it again. Uh, for 2026, but Jack Kemp felt compelled to run to the floor of Congress and say something like, um, it's very important for the future generations of young Americans that we make it clear that football is something where you punt and rush and throw and catch and use your hands and that you don't just kick it. He said Ugh. the former is everything that makes America great and the latter is European socialism. So, so when I moved here, that was kind of the the general consensus that football was um, kind of Jim McMahon and the Super Bowl-bound uh, Chicago Bears. They were good. Uh, and, and the football played in tight polyester shorts was a darkness. And, and one of the joys of my life has been watching that kind of year to year just evaporate. America has fallen in love with soccer, particularly the American generation under the age of 30, where it's a Gallup poll just uh, discovered it's the third favorite sport uh, in this country for Americans under the age of 30. And also, uh, football, soccer has fallen in love with America. It's many of the best teams in the world are actually now owned by American sports entrepreneurs. Um, our players are developing um, a, a sharpened talent. Um, the league here, 72,000 fans regularly pack a stadium in Atlanta, Atlanta, to cheer an MLS team. And the ratings for this World Cup and the Champions League and the Premier League uh, are really off the chart. Yeah. So America has become a soccer-loving nation. Um, the, the world football powers, which will use America in the month of August as a pre-season training ground, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester United, they all adore uh, America. 
Uh, and, and this World Cup, to be honest, as someone who's watched England have incredible hiccups, incredible embarrassment in world football tournaments, the US missing this 2018 tournament should really be it's not a reflection of who the US are as a, a soccer power they are much better than that they, it was just awful a series of awful decisions made over uh, an extended period of time each one multiplying the last until they were humiliated mm-hmm. in world sport how you face up to those decisions the lessons you learn from them um, are the ones that can set your uh, your football culture into winning ways. So I'd, I'd less look at the fact that we aren't there now. I'm very glad the ratings have been so bloody good for the World Cup being w- without the US. But what US soccer does in the wake of its abject failure, the lessons it learns in terms of targeting Latino footballers, young Latino footballers, recruiting, scouting them. Uh, Mexico right now knows where the best American Latino players are better than the US soccer powers, the way we move the sport from being a suburban sport for the elite uh, rather than a democratic sport that's played, scouted, coached, trained uh, at all levels, that's really uh, the thing we need to watch. And the good news is the World Cup is coming back here in 2026. It's an enormous catalyst. There's huge amounts of money about to pour into the sport. So I'm a very negative man because I'm not only English, I'm also Jewish, but even I'm incredibly optimistic and, and really bullish about the sports future in this country. Well, you know, I went to one of those games in, in 94 at Foxborough. It was Italy versus Nigeria. I remember Roberto Baggio. He was the, yeah. the big star. The divine ponytail. Yes, at the time. And, you know, I think you're right that the, the sport has come an enormous way since then. It is probably not yet vaulted into the you know, baseball, football, basketball levels, right? But do you think an American star like uh, Christian Pulisic, it, it could be that catalyst? I mean, that young man is so handsome. I had to cover my fiance's eyes while we were watching a 60 Minutes uh, piece on him last night because I didn't want her to get any ideas. I mean, it, it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes think Michael Davis and myself at Men in Blazers, two bald men, are the only things that are keeping soccer back from really going over the top in this country, Tommy. Um, I mean, the, the, the reality is it is bigger than baseball, particularly in the demographic. You know, baseball is aging, skewing. Uh, I think the average age is 60 in the regular season. I think during the, the World Series, it plummets down to 55 years wow. of age. It really is a, a generational divide. And, and, and soccer, when you look at its growth in America, baseball's kind of golden days. They were in the age of the radio when everyone would sit in around with candles in their lounge and listen to the St. Louis Cardinals game on the radio. And then along came television. The NFL exploded. It's the perfect televisual sport. 28 camera angles, action replay, commercial breaks that allow you to go and get another bud uh, and go to the bathroom. It was just perfect for that televisual age. And what's changed while I've been here? When I moved to America, early 90s, if I wanted to watch a great soccer game uh, for my team, Everton, mighty, mighty Everton uh, in England, there was nothing. It was arid. It wasn't on television. My father had to hold the telephone. I had to call him. He'd hold the telephone against the television and I'd follow along that way. That's changed. Not just the quantity of elite football that's now broadcast on American television, but the internet allows the American fan in Los Angeles to connect to Liverpool Football Club or the fan in Montana who lives and dies for Manchester City as closely as a fan that lives in the same zip code as those teams stadia. And that internet connection has made uh, soccer the perfect sport for the internet age. It's been an incredible driver. EA Sports FIFA, that video game. Uh, other video games just reinforce a love that you already have. I love the NFL. I play Madden. I play so much Madden. Um, EA Sports FIFA is the only sports video game that has taken people who don't even love the sport, have no interest in it, made them addicted to EA Sports FIFA and through that game they've fallen in love with the teams, the players, the style of play. It's been the gateway to the actual sport itself. So the internet, FIFA, the television, the Champions League, World Cup to World Cup, the rise of the sport has been unbelievable. We're already a true soccer power uh, in terms of the audience, in terms of the dollar, in terms of the number of jerseys that are sold here. The question of how we develop like, where's the American Lionel Messi, Tommy? Mm-hmm. That's a complicated one. Right. It takes decades to develop a football culture uh, where you can reliably produce them. We should have at least one. Statistics say we should have at least one freakish individual, like a, a minute ball 
who kind of grew up as a sheep herder but happened to have the great characteristics to be a pro player, why we haven't created one yet, something we're going to work on together. That's great. Russia looms large over this tournament as the host country. They've been uh, accused of bribing FIFA officials to get the tournament in the first place. Uh, Theresa May, Prime Minister of the UK, ordered officials, including Prince William, who is the president of the English Football Association, to boycott (laughs) the World Cup over the nerve agent poisoning of a former spy in London. Um, You were just in Moscow. (sighs) What was it like for you as an American fan of the English team in Putin's Russia? And and do you agree with those who say this is a, a big propaganda win for Putin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's awful. It's a, it, This is rogue state 2018. We can never forget that this tournament is in Russia. We can never forget, I mean, that Russia, what Russia is, what Russia stands for, what's going on there geopolitically. We had Gary Kasparov, uh, one of my chess icon heroes as a, as a kid, come on our show right before the World Cup. He loves football, loves football. Um, and, and, you know, I asked him, should we should we be boycotting? Why are we not boycotting Rogue State 2018? And he was like, no, we can't boycott. Football must go on. But he said, you know, there should be a diplomatic boycott of the World Cup. And a lot of countries actually did. Uh, Iceland led the charge and I think eight or nine countries refused to give Russia the photo op that they craved for, which was their prime minister, like Macron was today, the French President in you know in 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 the confines of a Russian uh, uh, um, president's box and 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 that's the optics that Putin was looking for in hosting this thing. Um, you know, it's as propaganda uh, an affair as the Berlin Olympics, really, in in, term, yeah. in 1936 from propaganda purposes. And it has been a propaganda triumph, not like the 1980 Olympics, uh, which was meant to show Russian might and Russian power. I think the odd thing having been in Moscow was that the whole ethos of this World Cup, the aim seems to have been to try and normalise Russia to kind of counter the story of the suspicion of this country, to invite the world, and there really is the world, when there's a World Cup that's going on, you have in the 11 cities that this is going on, you have, you know, Colombians are just shuttling city to city, uh, and then Spain will be playing your city, and suddenly thousands and thousands of Spaniards kind of paratroop in out of nowhere. Argentinians will be sending a line in the street. It is the world comes to your nation. And the goal here... And it was it was truly successful. I, I was in Moscow a couple of years ago, and it was a fairly musty place. I mean, historically fascinating, but fairly musty, slightly shabby. I didn't recognise it when I landed uh, two weeks ago. It had been gussied up. It was totally gilded. Everywhere felt like the High Line in New York. It felt like that. You know, the 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 elderly. Um, I don't know where, what they'd done with Moscow's elderly or or the homeless population in Moscow, not to be seen in that town centre. It was just beautiful people that had been paratrooped in. There was an, it felt like the Truman Show in many ways. When you go to games, they had um, kind of model-looking women on high kind of um, Baywatch-style lifeguard chairs every hundred yards with loudspeakers <laughs> just screaming, Welcome to Russia, Brazil fans! It was like being in Gilead. If Gilead <laughs> hosted the World Cup, that's what I imagine. And Gilead, by the way, I wouldn't put it beyond FIFA to give Gilead uh, the World Cup. <laughs> for the right but that, price. But that's what it felt like. It's been a massive win, a massive win for Putin, topped off by the fact that the the Russian team, who were meant to be, from a footballing perspective, kind of the worst host since... Seth MacFarlane hosted the Oscars. They actually were bloody good. I'm not saying they're doping, Tommy, but they ran fast. They ran far. They ran a lot more than any other team. And they went deep, deep, deep into this one, which was another win for Putin. Uh, you mentioned doping. There, I mean, there have been news reports accusing the Russian national team of doping. The World Anti-Doping Agency says more than a thousand Russian competitors across 30 sports, including soccer, were involved in institutional conspiracy to conceal positive tests. Um, the FIFA, yep. the Russians have denied those reports. Are, are PEDs as big a problem in soccer as, say, track and field or name your American sport? Um, you know, muscle buildup does not help you in soccer. It's not like Brady Anderson, where you can like one minute hit seven home runs and then the next suddenly Brady Anderson, how many did he hit? Like 57, 58, and then maybe it was drug season. So suddenly he hits three the next season. That muscle buildup does not help. What helps in soccer, 
um, is just your energy levels, the sustained energy levels. And this Russian team, who were terrible, they were, they've been terrible, they are terrible, they were predicted to be terrible, it was meant to be a humiliation. The funny thing was, Putin distanced himself from all the games. He went to the first one right. because it was the opening ceremony. And by the way, in one of the great power moves of all time, he gave an opening address. Um, where it was just kind of he muttered some words, made it seem like he couldn't really be that arse to be there. And then he had to rush off to go to, I imagine him like, I need to go to the pork product wholesalers of Siberia conference. So I've got somewhere more important to be than the World Cup. That's the, the kind of vibe he gave with his opening cool address. Vibe. Like That is the, yeah, the ultimate power move. World Cup, no big deal. Got to go to somewhere far more important. He distanced himself from every game after that. They beat Saudi Arabia 5-0 in that game. And they went to the elimination rounds. And for the, they played Spain, a mighty team, a team that pass opponents to death. And I'm not saying Russia were doping, but when you speak to players who play this Spanish team, they, they, the Spanish team, for those who don't watch soccer, they kind of toss the ball around as if it's a frisbee. Uh, and they're the greatest ultimate frisbee team of all time. And opponents spend the whole game just chasing shadows. And when you speak to people who play the Spanish team, they say, I can't tell you how exhausting mentally and physically it is to play this team by it's like a boxer work having their kidneys work they say you know after about 60 minutes you're just so exhausted you are sucking for for, for air this russian team never stopped running and you saw the astonishment in the spaniards eyes they they're used to teams wilting so they can score russia never wilted um the game went to penalties penalties in russia Spain were never going to have a chance and they kept going on and, and the Russian team became a symbol and a win, another win for Putin, a, a great expression of, of Russian nationalism. There was an incredible boon. He's invited them to the Kremlin. Cynics here will say, is he uh, the White House going to invite the Russian team uh, to, 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 the, uh, to have a celebration? But they, they went out nobly. They really did. They played Croatia in the, the KGB derby, an incredible game. That game went to penalties again. And looking at these poor Russian footballers' faces, to, to be penalty kicks are an incredible crucible of pressure. But my God, for a Russian who knows that Putin, and he did, called the manager before the game and after every game, those phone calls must have been oh my God. phone calls of sheer terror. Those poor Russians walking up to take the penalties in that quarterfinal, knowing that they were suspended between glory and the gulag. The stakes in sports do not probably get much higher than that. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Roger, how do you respond to your critics who say it's hypocritical for you to raise PEDs when podcasting to an American audience with a mellifluous British accent is essentially a performance-enhancing drug in and of itself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the honest truth is I speak like I have my jaws wired together. And um, I think my English accent, to some degree, which is totally fake, because I was born in the northern suburbs of Chicago. I, was a, I wasn't really, but I was definitely a Chicagoan trapped in an Englishman's body. But um, English people tell me I speak as if I've got my jaws wired together. So I don't think my English ac accent is too much of a... Uh, is too much of a asset. The only asset I have is I can remember Brady Anderson. Yeah, my uh, my and producer Michael is uh, is an Orioles fan, and he is blown away that you had that fact at the ready. Oh, and Jack Kemp. I bet you Jack Kemp's not been mentioned on Pod Save America enough. No, no, Mr. Kemp is uh, <laughs> not a not a hero of ours. Um, you, you mentioned this the the Russia team. They did. They had a great run. The Croatians defeated them uh, shortly after Croatia's win. A defender shouted glory to Ukraine in an online video message. Uh, he apparently yep. used to play for a Ukrainian club team. They initially tried to claim that, you know, he and a coaching assistant were just thanking their fans in, in the Ukraine. But by Monday, they were backpedaling uh, and they booted the assistant coaches in the video from the team. So 
two-part question. If you were Putin preparing to invade Croatia, would you go by land through Ukraine and Hungary, or would you send the fleet up through the Adriatic Sea? And second, yeah. I mean, how prevalent are these so-called political gestures in FIFA games, and are they seen as a real problem? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. The, um, the, if the, the, the defender who shouted out, uh, played in Donetsk, uh, the glory to Ukraine, a guy called Vadic, He's a, he's a fantastic, he's got the haircut of the tournament. It really is. He's like Croatian Joe Dirt. Looks like a white walker. He actually scored. He actually scored against Russia and ripped his shirt off. And it, it was just genuinely, I've never seen a whiter man no, never. in my life. It, genuinely phenomenal. I, it, was, it was nipples I do not want to see again, please God, in my lifetime. So he was the gentleman with a coach. And what, what's fascinating to me, Tommy, is... If he'd shouted out into a camera, into that same camera, if he'd shouted out, um, all power to Vladimir Putin, knowing FIFA as I do, that's a political statement. That's an unbelievable political statement. I I imagine FIFA would have done next to nothing. Um, And the the reality is FIFA are unbelievably arbitrary. They are not well-equipped. Not, I mean, stick to sports, FIFA like to do. They're not Mm -hmm. well-equipped when sports and politics collide. And they have often in this tournament. There was there was a, one of the, the great scenes. I mean, this World Cup has been so bloody good, so bloody good, that like today's game, the, the France against Belgium heavyweight tussle, it was the greatest game of football I've seen since since the last World Cup game. So you kind of memory, you have a memory of a goldfish and you forget things. But a couple of rounds ago, um, the Swiss team played Serbia. Uh, and scored two late goals, fantastic goals, incredible drama to beat the Serbians. And a couple of the Swiss players um, had Albanian um, roots, incredible, like like much of that area of Europe. And upon scoring the winner, they walked right up to the camera and made the Eagle of Kosovo. In fact, one of the players had the Eagle of Kosovo, uh, Shakiri on his cleats to begin with. And FIFA had no idea. I mean, my God, that is a gesture. It's a bold man that does that gesture on a football field in front of 20,000 Serbia fans. But FIFA had no idea how to begin uh, to unpack this. And, I, and they took very little action. I have to believe that, the, that this was really a, a, a Putin-related uh, piece of punishment. And I think Croatia tried to head it off by sending home the coach, but they've kept the player. I wish mm-hmm. the player had gone too, because Croatia... Uh, play England tomorrow. But the, the, the geopolitics of Europe are, are played through in this tournament more than any other. I mean, football ultimately, Tommy, and this is one of the reasons I love it. Football is, and, and Albert Camus said this, we write about this in our book, Encyclopedia Blazitanica. What draws us to football is really it's just humanity expressed for the whole world to see. Albert Camus himself wants a great goalkeeper before he you know, realised it wasn't going to work out for him and he accepted his lesser, his plan B to become a writer. He said, everything I know about the obligations of, of man, he meant humanity, he said, man. He said, I learned through, through football, from watching football. And ultimately, football just traps everything, culture, history, uh, values. And, and, and in this case, this World Cup, the geopolitic, political kind of fracturing of Europe. And for no team more... Um, than Germany, who are, for those of you who don't watch football, just an omni-power. They are the Walmart of global football. They just always win. There's an old cliche in England that football, soccer, is a simple sport. 22 men chase a ball on the field, and in the end, the Germans win, which is just a common wisdom. But in this World Cup, for the first time ever, in their history, they failed. They failed to come out the group stage. They were awful. They humiliated. It was like watching Darth Vader just kind of trip over his own shoelaces. <laughs> That's how hilarious and shocking the 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 the, the spectacle the spectacle uh, of Germany failing was. Yet, even behind that failure, there were you know the geopolitical split. A number of the of the German players and Germany's strength in the past ten years has been in engaging its. It's hybrid identity players. First, they brought in a lot of Poles uh, to play striker who took great pleasure in scoring for Germany against Poland, uh, like Klosser. Um, and, then, and then they took in a wave of, of, of Turkish Germans. And two of them, before this World Cup, Meza Ozil, uh, just a sad-eyed artist, um, and, and Gundogan, went to met with Erdogan right, behind the, uh, right before the World Cup. And they gave him 
their own jerseys, which they signed to my president. Great photo op for Turkey, great show of, of soft power by Erdogan. And the German public were just disgusted, absolutely disgusted, not just the German public, but within the squad, the 23 players, mm. there was just a, a, an immediate fracture between the Germans who were, you know, we're, we Germans, here's how we do things. This is the German value. This is the German way of carrying yourself. And the kind of half of the squad um, that had a, a more complicated identity. And squad harmony is everything. And right. when German journalists look at why Germany were just so flat, so disappointing, so human, so weak, so mortal, they point to that photo op. It's the photo op wow. which... Uh, which destroyed the nation. Nothing's made me happier, but it's the photo that destroyed a nation. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting the, the way you talk about football, just for being all encompassing in terms of politics and culture. I mean, Mussolini tried to use the 38 World Cup as propaganda. West Germany and East Germany faced off at the height of the Cold War. In 78, yeah. Argentina hosted the games just after a military coup. Nike can't supply the Iranian team with cleats because of U.S. sanctions. I mean, politics is inevitably part of these games should we all just shut up and be happy that they're battling out on the on the pitch and not the battlefield the financial times journalist simon kuiper um, my favorite sports writer of all time he once wrote that when two teams take the field in the world cup their nation's histories take the field alongside of them and that, that to me that's the joy that's the joy of football it's that all of that all of the hopes and dreams of the entire nation. You know, in sports, I was, we're doing this live tour right now during the World Cup, Men in Blazers. We've gone to city after city across this country. And it's true in America as it is for other parts of the world. You know, we were in Philadelphia this week and we, we mentioned um, New England Patriots and Pete, the, just the whole room went berserk and told us exactly Ugh. what they thought of Tom Brady. We were in Portland. They told us how much they hate Seattle. We were in San Francisco. They made it completely clear how much they just despise Cleveland. And sports is so local. The joy of soccer in many ways is that it's power, these teams, to unify an entire nation. No, no longer are we kind of like Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal fans, but the whole of England, pretty much give or take. And even that's a little more complicated up north. They actually properly hate the English national team. But the mo most of England is behind that team. And so these teams are among the most beloved United Simple. The Italian team, who didn't make this World Cup, but the Italian team is one of the, an incredibly local, an incredibly local regional uh, country. It's one of the few symbols of which Italians are unified and proud that they bring out an Italian flag for. There was a big problem in the 1990s when they started to play the national anthems before games and the Italian, um, the Italian sports press were like, why is everybody else singing their national anthem and our Italian team never sing? And the captain of the team had to come out and apologise and say, the honest truth is we never sing it publicly. We never sing it in Italy. It's just never sung. And none of us know the words. And now when you watch Italy, their captain, Gigi Buffon, no one bellows a national anthem. Just look at it on YouTube. No one bellows an anthem with more, proud, with more pride love it. than that man. And to some degree, soccer, the World Cup, is one of the few places where history, past enmity, uh, past conflict can be played out in a, in a largely, in a largely uh, safe confine, joyously, wonderfully. And, and this World Cup is truly... Uh, born it through. Although, to be candid, if England do make it through Miracle of Miracles and play France, I'm, uh, I think all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, enough of the French. We're sick of them. Final question <laughs> for you, because I know this has been like the craziest week of your life career. Um, Up there. FIFA is a mess. Uh, seven FIFA officials were arrested for fraud and racketeering and money laundering in 2015. They were so brazen uh, about their corruption that they gave the 2022 yeah. games to Qatar, where temperatures can reach 120 degrees in the summer. And this army of, of migrant workers is being forced to build their infrastructure out in these horrifying conditions and people are dying. Um, can FIFA be fixed? And do you think fans care? I mean, does it impact the way people view the games or did they just not really give a shit? It's a darkness. It is a darkness. FIFA is a darkness. It's just human venality. It's everything that's awful um, about mankind just left to run amok. <laughs> and the saddest part of it is it is in full public view. I mean, not unlike politics right now. In America, some would say, like, there's something going on 
but none of us are able to really articulate it with a clear surety. Football is a joy. Football is, some would say, the most the 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 the, um, the most meaningful uh, least meaningful thing in the world is the old cliche about football it, it brings incredible structure incredible meaning incredible joy like the NFL here uh, to a large degree for millions and millions of people around the world that FIFA got away with it as long as it did for a variety of different reasons one of them is that FIFA was run um, like Chicago politics under under Mayor Daly, where it was a machine, and the machine right. um, w- was run by a gentleman called Seth Blatter, who um, knew that every single country, even tiny countries, it has more countries in it than the United Nations does, which is which is incredible. They actually invented countries so they had more votes, and he knew that w- when it was a situation where uh, a big country, let's say. Uh, the uh, Germany had as many votes as Antigua and Barbuda. Then it, he, he just knew that whatever happened, he had enough votes and he could siphon money to some of the more corrupt areas in South America. Uh, in our region, CONCACAF, Central America, was key. That's one of the most heartbreaking parts of the FIFA story is that um, the United States and many of the regions around it, particularly Trinidad and Tobago, were kingpins uh, in the Chicago machine politics that delivered power to Sepp Blatter, this craven, awful human being. And the, the reason they were able to get away with it, twofold. Number one, the, the journalists who were really doing the deep investigation, and this is probably, there's parallels for you in your other Pod Save America work. The journalists who were doing the Lord's work, the investigative work, um, who were trying to bring FIFA down, were from England and Germany. And when they do their investigative bombshell reporting, Sepp Blatter, this evil, awful, craven Swiss, used to lift up their reporting, turn around to his base, which was largely Africa, parts of Asia, Central America, and say, see, look, they, they, they hate you. They, they, can't, they can't get over the fact that they've lost power in those old soccer countries. They can't stand that there's this new world order. And he actually used it to rally his base. So every investigative bombshell actually tightened his grip on power, tightened um, his, his kind of base and, and made him even more powerful. And the thing that took FIFA down, I always said it would, was an American newspaper, an American journalist. In this case, um, and a name now has taken on a very different meaning in this modern political reality. Uh, Loretta Lynch, it took her stepping up to bring FIFA down. had to come from the United States because he couldn't pass that off as just someone who was jealous of his power in the new world order. And also the United States has all the corporations in it um, that were giving FIFA money and that Coca-Cola's uh, and those kind of organized McDonald's who gave FIFA millions were humiliated and, and, and made sure that those changes happened. But from a fan perspective, with sports, you love sports because of the fun. You love sports because of the thrill of a goal. You love sports because of the, the drama of the penalty shootout. You love sports because heroes we didn't know the name of uh, four weeks ago are now suddenly preoccupying the front of our brain. The whole world is crazy with this 19-year-old Mbappe. When I was 19, mixtapes, beers, watching football. When he's 19, he's thinking about making a several, you know, he's thinking about the number of Lamborghinis he's going to get from his move to Real Madrid with sublime skill. Heroes forged, villains uh, kind of humiliated. That's why we watch sports. And no one ultimately really wanted to give that emotional energy to see how the sausage was made at FIFA. And that's how this darkness happens. Ultimately, we all know it's there. But people want the passion. We want the touchdown. We want the home run. We don't want to look at the, the, the lift up the stone, look at the rock and see the darkness that lies within. And it's that human impulse that allowed FIFA to get away with it for so long. Ugh. Sepp Blatter. Talk about your all-time villain name, too. I mean, what a on. note to end on, yeah. Everyone should subscribe to Men in Blazers. You should subscribe to American Fiasco. And if you want a fantastic gift, maybe pick up uh, Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, a, a wonderful book about soccer and America and all the goodness that you heard from my fantastic guest today, Roger Bennett. Roger, thank you so much for doing the show. You are totally. uh, you're very good at this. You're a mensch, and I've had <laughs> such a good time. Number one, I want to raise a glass with you when you're next in Cheers. New York. And number two, I'm going to cancel a litigation for you stealing the great friend of the pod. No. We now we're over that. We have so to we talk about share. that because we thought we stole that from Morning Joe. <laughs> 
because Joe and Mika would always say, oh, Donald Trump is a friend of the show. So we thought we were mocking them by saying friend of the pod. I didn't realize that we were actually plagiarists. That, that makes me feel bad. Oh, it doesn't make you feel that bad. Think of all those T-shirts around the world. Think of all those. Think of all that. We can share. We can share. Okay. We're big enough to share. We will share a drink when you're in New York. You're doing, you're doing the Lord's work. Godspeed and best to everyone over there. Drinks on Crooked Media. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks, man. Rock on. Courage. That's it for my two-parter on Pot Save the World today. You know the drill. Please share this episode with your friends. If you enjoyed it, we are always hoping to get the word out about Pod Save the World and uh, rate and review us in the iTunes store. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.